You're listening to Josh and Dave on the Audit Podcast, which is on the Lever, which is a news. Uh, what is it? It's a it's Lever. a massive, massive conglomerate of crazy leftists. It is it is taking on CNN. It is taking on Fox News, uh, and it's a fighter. Lever. The lever is a the, uh, the lever is a fighter, a tenacious little scrappy. I'd call it a uh, with the honey badger intensity. <laughs> Watching people come at Sirota as though like was the guy's like, what's you what really, you ever done? All you do is all you do is criticize <laughs> Pete Buttigieg. Like, yeah, that's all he's done. That's all he's ever done. That's it's completely it's dead right. Amazing. It's always amazing to me when people find someone who has had, and it happens to you and I, who's had a body of work in which they've achieved well, essentially their dreams. And then they go, What have you ever done? And you're like, literally. Literally living my dream. <laughs> like, <laughs> I swear to God, it's it's not to get too much into Twitter bullshit, but you know, I have in my profile. It's been there for years. Oscar nominated screenwriter, and every now and then I'm like, oh, I should just take that down. That's kind of obnoxious. And then no. within 24 hours of that, somebody, and it doesn't matter. It's like Democrat. <laughs> some somebody will, you know, be getting into it with me about something. And I get this from crazy right wingers. I get it from crazy centrist Democrats invariably they'll find some way to work it. Oh, Oscar nominated screenwriter. Yeah. Oh, look who didn't win an Oscar. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's yeah. like moth to a flame. Like somehow yeah, pointing really out weird. that, uh, uh, I'm a thing that's in my profile is, is gonna, like, Oh, I'm destroyed. And there was something recent yeah. where someone was, uh, uh, bitching and moaning about Sirota. And I sort of chimed in and they were like, Oh, look, another Oscar nominee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry i've done shit it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah i don't know anyway this podcast is brought to you by the lever the award-winning reader-supported investigative news outlet if you'd like to support the show there are a few ways you can do it first you can become a paid supporter to the lever this will give you access to our bonus content too this will give you access to the lever premium podcast feed damn it the extended interviews and tons of special bonus content. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution that goes to me and Dave and our support team, you can leave a tip at levernews.com slash audit. You'll see a button for the tip jar. That'll take you to our Venmo page. You can also go to that directly. We are at the audit at Venmo under businesses. Dave, the Adderall shortage is over. Is it? No. 
just, I just, I just, I just had the, the spirit was in me, man. I wanted to speak in tongues before we get into it. A couple of things, actually a little bit of business from last week. Um, uh, remember this guy? Good morning, everyone. Uh, only three years ago today, I was sleeping on a piece of cardboard in the doorway on Golden Gate and Hyde in the Tenderloin, severely addicted to heroin. I am living proof that there's a direct correlation between homelessness and substance use in the city. Yeah, I do. Uh, that was a clown named Tom Wolf um, from our homeless episode. Uh, he was in the documentary and a listener named Kevin Jones wrote in. I uh, was very familiar with this guy. Apparently he's, uh, he's, he's well known up in uh, San Francisco, but he um, sent us a profile from, I think the San Francisco Chronicle. And there's a lot of interesting details in it. My favorite though, is that during the six months that uh, Tom Wolf was on the streets, uh, he actually still uh, owned a home in Daly city. So I think there's I a just... difference between being homeless and owning a home and just not staying in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm no expert, but I'm pretty certain that homeless means you got no home. Uh, so good. Am I clear here? I know yeah, this is a, a fine point, Dave. If you have a home, you with me so far? You can't be homeless. The word homeless derives from the Greek homeless. It is. <laughs> it means it is you got no home. It is problematic that he can be unhoused, though. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yes. Well, no, but I don't know. Is he, though? Is he, like, I guess. <sighs> he is not in a house. He's not in a house, but. So he he is technically not in a house. So, uh, yes. I see. So that's between homeless and unhoused, I guess. He's got a home. Yeah. Got a home. Anyway, I love that. Uh, but anyway, we um, thought for a minute or two about whether or not we should talk about this. And I was like, you know what? We are, first and foremost, the one thing we have any kind of expertise at um, is we are we are uh, critics of media, I would say, wouldn't you? Oh, boy. Um, boy are we. And a big, big story broke uh, just the other day, last week, as you're listening to this in Vanity Fair. It's an amazing article, highly recommended. I don't want to get too much into like bringing down all the details because you just need to let it happen. Lost Illusions, the untold story of the hit show's poisonous culture by a woman named Maureen Ryan, who's got an upcoming book called Burn It Down, um, which is all about kind of toxic Hollywood culture. Um, and it's an amazing, amazing, amazing article that um, details just what a nightmarish work experience uh, the show Lost was. And it's interesting for a lot of reasons. I think Dave and I are, want to talk about it. Uh, probably mostly just to go, neener, 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 we told you so. Because um, Dave and I both stopped watching that show very early on, I think. How far did you make it? I don't know about, well, but, you know, I have a tendency to keep watching something mm. when I think it's lost the plot just to so see what it'll do. Okay. So I, I hung in there and I watched it through some stuff that I was just like, what is Oh, wow. Because I, I didn't. I gave up fairly early because after a few really good opening episodes, um, and I came to it because of, of two out of Terry O'Quinn, who's an amazing actor I've loved forever since I uh, first saw him in a movie called The Stepfather, um, and the very great Harold Perrineau, uh, who I'd seen other things before then, but Oz was where he really uh, blew up. And then, of course, Romeo Juliet, uh, Baz Luhrmann's. He's just a fucking phenomenal actor. 
and it became very clear to me after a little while that they were not, um, and I hate when shows do this, they're setting you up for a specific journey. Mm-hmm. They're creating a mystery that they want you to invest in. And I am happy to invest yeah. in that mystery if I have a strong sense that you know where it's going. And it became clearer Correct. and clearer that they had no idea where it was fucking going. And the first season, you couldn't figure that out. Right. Pretty soon into the second season, it yeah. was like, that may, ah. It may be that I made it partially into the second season. That could be. Um, you're, you're probably right. Uh, it's been a long time. but And I also started noticing, and this got worse too, that it really – for its for its quote unquote diverse cast, it really was just about these uh, handful of white characters, um, yeah. none of whom I found appealing. By the way, I don't want to make out like I'm some um, kind of like great social justice machine. I, I the Sawyer guy, I've never gotten over. I just there's something about him that just. Well, he always seemed very. Uh, mis- <laughs> He's got foggy it was quality. Like- well, yeah, he was a soap opera yeah. uh, type, like yeah. actor-y type uh, situation. Um, the I, too, I just found Blaine main lead. I felt the same way about the, the Kate uh, character. But yeah, they were all, I mean, Quinn was the only one, and then the little weird others guy. Uh, yeah. But other than that, it was very, but that's that was very TV at the time, uh, yeah. network TV at the time, very, very much that sort of thing where the, which is why I didn't watch like, and don't nah. watch a lot of network TV. But, but what was interesting is I yeah. mean, you read the article and it is just an absolutely abominable environment for writers, uh, especially women and people. It's incredible. It's in, it's incredible. It, yeah. It's incredible, but not surprising, but incredible. And that, and that's the thing in reading it. And look, I don't, I, uh, there are plenty of things that are wonderful. There are plenty of great works of art that just fill your heart with joy and convince you that the people who made them um, must be, you know, must walk with angels in which they're absolute monsters. There's also things that look like they're perfectly planned that are complete chaos behind the scenes. I'm not saying you can always tell, but the thing with Lost is that none of these revelations, while the specifics of them are astonishing, I didn't know any of them, nothing in this article was a surprise. And I sort of just think back to many conversations I had with friends who are like rabid fans of this show. And um, I'm just sort of cackling in the Mm -hmm. fact that they're probably remembering those conversations too and wanting to punch me in the face even harder. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's astonishing and and david i got into a little bit on twitter talking about this because one of the things you know howard parano is this amazing black actor and he came onto the show uh shortly a couple years after oz and you know they they lured they him in they with, sought him out yeah they sought him they, out yeah they went after him yeah he didn't come in and just read for a part they sought him out and they they told him they wanted to do big things with his character and you know here's a guy who you know uh, I, I doubt Harold Parano was being asked to come in and audition for things I think that's how you got him at this point as you went to him specifically right. and you know he's a black man in America and has some thoughts on the subject and. Um, wanted to make sure that the show uh, was was true to him and his experience. And uh, they then proceeded to just sort of back burner him and not do much with him. And then they get to the thing with his son. Do you want to? Well, let's, but let's say why they back burnered him because they told him when he brought it up mm-hmm. and uh, they said, well, people can relate to the other characters. Yes. People can relate. Now, I, having been a huge fan of Oz, was very yeah. excited to see him on a TV show and yeah. really would have been very happy if he was the lead of the 
uh, yeah. lost. <laughs> like he was one of my favorite actors, if not my favorite actor on the show. On us. Yeah. And I'm a super white guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just like good acting. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it's toss up for me. It's between him and J.K. Simmons. And it was kind of hard to say J.K. Simmons was your favorite actor on Oz because he was such a, <laughs> he's a, he's a Nazi who routinely raped other men against, you know, well, against their will. It's always good. I mean, it was really hard to love him. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. He, he, he and Paradise were like the, the, the fucking superstars on the yeah. show. And, um, and he had a kid on the show, I guess. I mean, I, I, I was gone by the time this yep. stuff started happening. And then the kid disappears. And mm-hmm. again, don't uh, get into the details. Too much of this article. I I remember this episode so clearly because as a writer, uh, there was like this raft situation, and he gets saved, and he can't get to his kid, and they and they he only says once, you know, I need to find my kid, mm-hmm. and then it never comes up again. And I remember. And, you know, these are things you think, is it because I'm a writer or is it because I'm just watching TV? But I'm like going, why isn't he talking about his kid anymore? Like now it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's jarringly odd to watch. And that's, that's bad writing first and foremost. And, and I do wonder, cause I, I never, I don't want to leap to immediate conclusions and it's like, is it just bad writing and they were just busy on other things or was it really that they just don't give a shit about a black kid and his father, you know? And and that's how and, and I, his his point and he makes it very eloquently because he's not even yeah it's not even that he's accusing them of that he's just saying I don't want to be part of something where uh, uh, a black boy is being devalued and a black father's relationship with his son is being just ignored um, he's not attributing yeah. motivation to them um, and of course you don't want to do that and as an actor you don't want to play a character whose son has just been vanished from him and you don't think of, I mean that alone is fucking insane. Well, it's very, it's very indicative of what is going on in the room and, yeah. and what's happening with this character in that they have sidelined him and they want to get to uh, the important conversations of Sawyer stealing a motorcycle or whatever the fuck he did in his past life. You know, the stuff that really doesn't matter, whereas the pressing, I don't think they had any idea how, uh, how the disappearance of his son on the island was a pressing and constant thing in the back of every viewer's mind. That's that's it, that's so fucking you were, bizarre. You were always like, "Where's the kid?" Like it never went away, and and that that kid's disappearance was always bizarre, and the lack of screen time for the father was bizarre. It was all if you were watching the show, unless you had. There are people that were very they know what they're doing and like super crazy defensive, but you know, like the way people defend the democratic party or whatever. But, uh, but they, they were, they were clearly, it seemed to me very personal uh, because I, I always remember this, this story from Dick, Dick Wolf story of law and order. Cause I used to watch law and order. Mm -hmm. And uh, one time there is a assistant DA and, at the end of an episode, the middle of the season, like I want to say like episode six of a 24, she just gets hit by a a drunk driver and dies. And there's no, there's nothing leading up to it. It's just, she's dead. And it turns out that she had gone in and said, I feel like my character wouldn't do this. Right. Can we talk about it? And his response was to kill her. Right. And that's the, the uh, only other time 
I felt like something was very off was with this character just vanishing yeah. and, and, and the kid like it, them just not doing anything with it's it. So it weird, was like, though, cause it's one thing to sort of like, yeah, I, I get it. You sort of think of your characters and what you're interested in. And you think of the actors that are playing them, but just like as a writer, as a creator, you need to step back and like, how is this playing? You know? And then you find out what happened to the I kid, did. which is really insane. Cause he just, I mean, he had, he had a growth thing. spurt uh, in between seasons. Right. And I kept thinking Which of Rome. Which happens on all shows. Do you remember, well, yeah, but so, do you remember Rome? Yeah. They had the kid, what was he Rome, playing, Octavius yeah. or whatever? It was hilarious because the yeah. season two of Rome started about a week after the end of season one. And this kid who was this delightful little, like seemingly 12-year-old Moppet, uh, you know, a week later on the show's timeline is now like six feet yeah. four. Going, hey, mom, how yeah. are you? Oh, <laughs> uh, I need help with my homework. And they were just like, fuck it, what are you going to do? And they did it. And you're like, you're fine with it. Yeah. Every now and then it's like, ooh, but you're fine with it. But here's the thing. Yeah. Rome was set in a version of reality. Yes. Lost, tell me I'm wrong, had magical elements. Didn't they do time travel bits in it? <laughs> yeah. They I mean, said they got, did it later, but I don't yeah, care. You've like, got a show where like, he could have you could have just had him walking on the island, fall into a hole, they pull him out, and he's he's inches larger yeah that would have been fine clearly you're not planning anything it's not gonna fuck any continuity up and it's, it's insane because like later on yeah they're doing episodes where it's like oh now we gotta put makeup on this actor to make him look older what a fucking godsend to have a character who actually looks like <laughs> a five years older version of himself a week after you know and then just think about just the, the thing that i kept getting hung up on reading this is like you've got the fucking opportunity to do this it ain't the wire, you know, you, you're going to have to explain, but yeah, it's this magical world. You have this amazing opportunity where a father and son who've been through all this stuff and bonded as tightly as any parent and child can, he's taken away from, and then he gets him back, but you've missed like five years of, of yeah. development together. I mean, I'm, I'm getting misty eyed just thinking about that. The incredible dramatic power of that, that they just skipped out on. Cause I guess they didn't give a shit and they were tired of, of, uh, they were just sort of, I guess, what alienated by Harold Perrineau every now and then going, um, Hey, could we uh, maybe give me something to do on this show? <laughs> well, there was a real, there was a real uh, casual racism, jokey racism. Uh, it's it, from reading the article. You just come away. Like, yeah. There was, there was also a, a, a it seems a, a undercurrent angry at, uh, having to employ or bring in anybody who's not white being, being told what to do is yeah. what it seems like being the studio telling people what to do, who to hire, who to, right. That comes across. Uh, well, there's also resentment of other voices on the show, regardless of there's one about the two very writers, much two writers who wrote an episode that I guess was like a fan favorite big time. And then the way they just got immediately marginalized by Lindelof and Coop and took credit for it. Yeah. Yeah, who would go out? Yeah, Literally uh, took credit for writing it, and they didn't. Uh, a very interesting uh, them thinking about it, you know, all these years later. Uh, what's his name? Uh, I always want to call him the same name as a soccer player. Uh, uh, not Lind Kuz. Uh, Lindelof. Lindelof. Um, he has a little more human response to the accusation. Yeah, Carl Goose's response is just like that never happened, bullshit, fuck that. But they're both, <laughs> that they're never both happened. Bad. They're both bad. Like Lindelof's not, he's just doing what you do when you're in his situation. And I think he's just mm -hmm. trying to, you know, he probably 
sees sees the you know the he realizes the light at the end of the tunnel is probably a train headed his way, and he's trying to make amends. But you know, is he is he actually going out? Is he contacting all those people in the article who are talking about the terrible things that were done to them? Is he making an effort to personally connect with them, or is he just talking about? Well, no, he sounds I was, like I was young. I'm I've learned my lesson, and by the way, he was older. And this is the thing. I haven't seen anybody with one exception, our friend Leslie Lee, who's, who's been on the show a long time ago on the old show. It's the only person I've seen mentioning this, but like for all this talk about how he's sort of more enlightened, no one, nobody wants to either. Cause so many people love this fucking show. And I remember you and I were not fans and we even talked for a while about maybe doing a, a break from West and doing a mini series about it. And it was like, it would just get us killed. It was a current show and people loved it. And you were dealing with racial issues in a way that were very, uh, that if you love the show and somebody came at you could really set you off, but fucking Watchmen, um, this is not Watchmen is not a show from a guy who has uh, achieved enlightenment that he did not have on Lost. <laughs> um, it's it's there. There were two things. There were so many things that did, but the things that made me crazy were one, this whole notion. First of all, that all your characters are now cops. In the show, there's you made it very clear it was going to be about sort of the black experience and it's post Black Lives Matter and so forth, and you know an amazing black cast, and the cops all wear masks and hide their identity because one time a few years back a bunch of them got killed by bad guys, and the show and the show treats that as a completely reasonable sympathetic response as though the fact that cops are sometimes in danger justifies them hiding their identity, guys pre those video cameras that they all wore, if a cop was going to beat the shit out of you or kill you and possibly be seen, they would turn their fucking badges around. So you couldn't see who they were. Yes. It's like, well, this is pure fascism. And they're, yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's pure fascism. And then they did this thing that really made me crazy from the beginning where they had this character. And I've been obsessed with Bass Reeves for, for decades. I tried a long time ago with Morgan Freeman to get a mini series going. He was going to produce Bass Reeves. If you don't know, you will soon. Um, was uh, one of the greatest lawmen in the Old West. He was an escaped slave. Who The stories vary. He either beat his master half to death or he beat his master to death, ran off to the Indian territories, lived with the Indians for a while, and became a U.S. Marshal. He was an ambidextrous dead shot. He was so fearsome that nine times out of ten, when uh, you know some bandits or whatever wanted men found out Bass Reeves was after him, they went, oh, fuck, and they turned themselves in. He's one of the great, American fucking heroes of the old West. And uh, there is, I think, uh, what's his name? The guy who does Yellowstone is going to be doing a mini series about him, which I mixed. It'll be well-written. I feel like there are other creators who might be better suited to take this guy on, but we'll see. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm not that guy. You don't have to be, you know, of the group to write about the group. I just think there are other people, but, um, and I say that as somebody who tried as a white guy who tried, um, but they opened with him. There was this, what did they call him? The black hood or something. There was this, you know, the first mass suit hero in the old West. And it's revealed that he's Bass Reeves. And the reason Bass Reeves is wearing is hiding his identity is because of course, as they state, if everybody, you know, if people find out it was a black man doing this, um, uh, he wouldn't last a day. And you're sitting there going, we know that's not true. <laughs> Yeah. The real Bass Reeves died very happily of old age, did not have to hide his identity. And in fact, his identity was the thing that made him, you know, people knew who the fuck he was and they turned themselves in. So it's just this weird, thoughtless revision, this kind of mindless, it seemed like kind of mindless liberalism because it's like, 
I'm not about to say that the old West was not a uh, bastion of racism, but to there were tons, there were tons of black cowboys, but because exactly. They were yeah. Slaves. And you're kind of, you're kind of erasing them and you're making him more of a coward. Cause it's like, yeah, we know for a fact he didn't have to wear a mask cause he didn't wear a mask. You know, right. the Lone Ranger's right. fictional character. I'll accept that he's going to wear a mask. <laughs> It was yeah. nuts. And then the shit with the cops and, and it was just bonkers. And it was like, he kept, um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's really frustrating. And I would hope that as the lost discourse progresses, people are going to get around to rethinking that show. Cause it really was kind of ugly. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm ranting. The thing, I, the thing about, uh, you know, and it wasn't just, you know, this, the, the treatment of the, a couple of black writers in the show was horrendous. The discussion of how to kill off a character, a black character on to leave the show, Mr. Echo, who I think it was Kuz who said, you know, let's hang him from a tree and put his dick in his mouth, which is just like, Oh, oh so that, that's a little, out of- it's a, to be clear, it's a little unclear. And everybody acknowledges it's not entirely clear if he said that or if he said it in a different context, but that, that, that was said and the implications of it were left kind of hanging. And a lot of people were very upset, but it's not a hundred percent clear if he was talking about doing that with a character or I don't know, but, but yeah, there was a lot of very uncomfortable kind of racist. Conversation. That's not what I took away. I took away that he, he said it when I read it. Okay. You know, they, they it made it clear clear. a little bit later that it wasn't a hundred percent certain, but, but that it had been said, just not quite clear what the context was. Um, and again, to be fair, you'll, you know, better than I do. Writers rooms are, you know, they need to be safe spaces in the sense that you need to be able to kind of say everything and anything because you're in the process of writing and people, you know, et cetera. But, but there is definitely, there's, there's a line and a lot of the writers in this article talked about hazing and there's a difference between being in a writer's room where people can say anything and in a writer's room where you feel unsafe. You know, I don't think you can say anything in a writer's room anymore. I, I, I would I would imagine that that's mostly true. I had it. I had an experience on the last show I wrote on where uh, we were talking about having a character who was a teenage uh, sex worker kid, and one of the other writers said, "Well, we can't do that." And I said, "Why?" And he goes, "Well, how, he won't be likable." And I said, right. "Why don't we just look at it from a non-Judeo-Christian perspective and just write him?" And then I had to apologize. Because I had apparently said, uh, I had apparently said she's, uh, you know, a right wing Judeo Christian, blah, blah. And it was just like, I was just, I was just befuddled. And what's like, the idea that a sex worker is intrinsically unlikable? Yeah, that was the, <laughs> that was the point. But I had to, I was the one who had to apologize. Well, there's that famous, I mean, there, there's, there's some, there's some truth to that. There's the famous uh, Richard Gere, Julia Roberts movie, um, Hideous Awful Woman, I think it's called. <laughs> in which Julia Roberts plays an incredibly unlikable sex worker that you're not rooting for at all. Uh, people love that movie. So yeah, there's, there's a, Jesus Christ. Um, I there also, there's a, there's yeah. a lot. Of, yeah. I, if, you know what, what we have in society is also reflected in those writers rooms. So it's all, you know, it's yeah. all, it's not like friends when you could literally just say whatever the fuck you wanted. And right. it's like, that's, but it's, it's, I, I can't recommend the article enough. Um, I'll be interested to read the book. My one, just from what I'm looking at, and I'm just, you know, a little battle scarred and a little weary. Uh, my hope is that she's taking on the entire culture. There's a, just a couple of subtle hints. I really like do want to be right? wrong. What? It seems like it. Yeah. I, I want to be wrong about this. I, I feel like her focus is going to be on sort of patriarchal and misogynistic behavior, which 
I need to be clear is a real fucking thing in our business, but there but, are horrible, horrible, horrible women as well in this business yes. with incredible amounts of power. And yes. it, it can be dangerous as much as a- the- Ellen, Ellen being sure. a great example. And sure. she got to stay on the air a year and, and continue on and, and say goodbye to everybody. And, you know, she was a fucking monster. Yeah. An absolute and, and I'll, I mean, monster. and here's, here's the Harold split. I mean, these, these uh, go after the patriarchy by all means, because these are women engaging in behavior that they're, they've modeled on patriarchal toxicity, but it's not just sure. men. And that's the thing. And I've, I've been in rooms with incredibly powerful women um, who, who uh, knew all there was to know about Harvey Weinstein and were happily working with them, not out of fear, um, but out of, out of, uh, you know, greed. Um, they could have easily not worked yeah. with him. Um, I didn't, I, my agents knew for years, uh, don't, don't put me up for anything, um, with, with Miramax. Uh, and I, I won't, I won't pretend I knew everything. I didn't know about the, the horrific sexual abuse. I just knew that they were fucking horrible people and that, uh, um, nobody came out of an experience with Harvey, uh, unscathed. But, um, so you could choose to actually have a career, not work with this guy, especially if you were a powerful woman. Um, so I'm hoping that she goes there as well. Cause a lot of, the, and also a lot of the people who prop up some of these monsters are, are women who are complicit. Yeah. Um, again, yeah, not they, to take away from the fact a, that a lot of them are women who are victims as well of this shit, but just there's a, there's a, there's a thing about Hollywood that, and just like, you know, any powerful thing, people are attracted to this town because they're, predators and monsters and you can get away with shit more here mm-hmm. and they know that and and yeah. and you can be the worst human being and i mean you know bill cosby is the greatest example yeah you can be and and weinstein those are the two like ultimate example for years we all knew yeah we all knew uh so you know it's like you can get away with it as long as you're making money yeah and i will have to the fact so that's I what don't, i don't know of any violent sexual predators in our business who are women. I don't. Um, and I don't no. equate, but I know plenty who enable it um, or have known. And, and then think about, you know, stuff like, I mean, it's just mind boggling that, that, uh, um, you know, Hillary Clinton was accepting advice. She was taking money from and taking advice from Harvey Weinstein on how to make Bernie Sanders look bad to black voters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and, and you vet these people when you're taking that kind of money from them and you're a politician, you vet these people. It's like, it's not conceivable that you don't know they're awful and what they're up to. Um, one other thing too, I also, yeah. which you won't get in the article, uh, although he is mentioned that there was a writer on the show who left after the second season. His name is Javier Grijo Marchois. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I think I am. Um, great TV writer. He's been on a ton of things. And uh, he's, in fact, I follow him on Twitter. It's where I first saw the article when it got uh, you know, released. Um, and he talked, he, he wrote a piece. It's a seven-page statement on the article, which is essential reading. And it's all about his experiences there. It's validating everything in the article and talking about his own, um, what he feels is his own complicity in keeping quiet. Uh, He said something really Mm -hmm. interesting in it. Um, He said, since quitting the show at the end of its second season, I have mostly played along with the useful hypocrisy that Lost was successful because of two geniuses whose behavior behind the scenes was every bit as delightful as it is in conventions, interviews, and talk shows. I call this hypocrisy useful 
because it allowed me to continue to work after Lost without career-ending retribution. It also allowed uh, these two writers, showrunners, to rise to great wealth and cultural influence. That's a really interesting piece. If you go to his Twitter account, it's OKBJGM, at OKBJGM. Um, it's the only place there's a link to this piece and you can read it uh, or check our show notes for this episode. Um, but it really is interesting. He's just upfront about uh, that hypocrisy. He talks later on about even after this article has come out and even after writing this, he still has to look over his shoulder. You constantly feel that. And I read it and I'm like, it's, it's so fucking true. There's so much in this business where you just have to watch what you say publicly. It's we're a very public industry. Yeah. There's very powerful people who will, we are most of us made to understand that we are, no matter how good we are, pretty much replaceable. And uh, it can be terrifying just to come out and speak simple truths. I mean, it's one thing to like, you know, get during the Harvey thing. People are like, oh, yeah, you knew. Why didn't you say something? I'm like, yeah, I'm a screenwriter who's never fucking worked with Harvey Weinstein in my life. I'm going to go on Twitter and go, by the way, he's a serial rapist. That's going to go really fucking well for me. (laughs) And and there is when stuff like that comes out, you see this collective sigh and so many people finally get to like come out and go, ah, and you get this just tidal wave of people telling stories, but it's really hard to speak simple truths in this business about anybody who's, you know, above you in the hierarchy. Um, Cause unless you're prepared to go kind of all the way, or unless you're prepared to just deal with the consequences that can be very serious, it's just easier to shut the fuck up. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the women who were blacklisted by Weinstein. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, like I get it. He, you don't speak up and he, he, if he had, there's a good chance his career would have been already just those two guys calling around telling people not to hire. When you, when you're looking at writers, you call up the previous showrunner and go, how were they? Everybody knows that. That's yeah. how the business works. Yeah. I've gotten calls. I've gotten calls from people and they've been like, what's it like to work with this person in the room? You know, like you get those that yeah. people want to know. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's hard. That, those aren't the people that should be doing it. The people who should be doing it are the people who oversee the shows, and and they know what's going on. Everybody knows what's fucking going on. There's no nobody's confused about a toxic environment. Nobody is. Yeah. Everybody knows there's a toxic environment. Yeah. And I, you know, I know, and they can also be a tough, tough road to navigate. I'm sure. I mean, we we both know people who are showrunners who are very good. Who like I have friends who I know for a fact. They're are, great. You know, we'll take a note from, you know, uh, a bus driver um, if it's if it's mm-hmm. good, you know, and then there are showrunners who will not take input even from their own fucking writers and, yeah. will, you know, 100% damage you if you try to do that. And it's like you can't always tell what room you're in. Um, yeah, you can't until you're in there and you're working in it. And I mean, you know, it, it like there's there's showrunners that, you know, are. Like Mike Royce is like a great guy to work for. Everybody loves to work for him. He'll listen to everybody. But, you know, the other side is like there are showrunners and everybody knows like, God, do you really want to take that job? Yeah. Well, I I have to. And then, you know, you're going into hell, hell. And I know too. I know one person who was being two shows were vying for her and both were toxic environments and they were they were outbidding each other to get her, and she was just like, she her decision came down to, 
which one will destroy me less. Yeah. And made her career. It made her career to get on that show. But I mean, that was, that was what the choice was. And everybody knew what the one of them actually ended up getting fired public, very publicly taken off his own show. You know, like imagine how bad you have to be to get publicly taken off your own show. Yeah. Just after reading the, the this, and everyone should read this article because it's really, it's really well done. And if you did watch Lost, it'll make a lot of things make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's also, a, she admits she's it, the writer. It is, she does an incredible job. Um, she acknowledges that she's friends with Lindelof and she talks to him about this stuff. Yeah. And like, yeah. that's, that's, it's pretty ballsy. Um, yeah. It's that is pretty and ballsy. They, I was, yeah, I, I was very impressed with her writing because she she actually has a conversation with him about it at the, yep. at the end of the, the chapter. And you're just like, how fucking awkward must that have been? Yeah. Because she could have just walked away and been like, okay, well, I told the story. But she went back to him. And, God, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's some serious like investigative writing. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And it, it is such a clear picture. And I think also Javier's piece is must read as well to sort of fill in some of those blanks. But um, gives you just such a picture of kind of the culture of fear and, and a lot of it's understandable, you know? Um, but it also, but it hurts everything. Forget, forget the people you're living in many miles from here. You don't care about like how the people who create your favorite shows are created or your favorite movies that that's fine, but it actually impacts creativity and impacts the quality of what you're watching. Cause if there is that fear, if you're afraid to speak up, um, just creatively to people, if you're afraid to, to give them input that could improve things, um, you're going to get bad uh, bad content, as they say. And I, I, I have seen people I have a long story. Maybe I'll tell it some other time, but it's like short version. I've been in a room when, uh, Jim Cameron was screening an early cut of a movie of his looking sincerely and completely and solely for editing notes to make it shorter. What doesn't work and not mm-hmm. able to get it from anyone in the room. Cause they're all just yeah. so used to being in this environment. And one person speaking the truth to him, I've been in the room with him a few times. It's the happiest I've ever fucking seen him. And I'm not about to go like poor Jim Cameron, the guy's doing all right. But there's a, there's a situation where like one of the most powerful filmmakers in the world has to really struggle to get people to tell them the truth about their work. Cause there's so much fear that is beat into people's heads. And um, yeah, I mean, we all, we all pay the price for it, but anyway, it's an incredible article. I don't know. I can go on for hours about it, but it's not that no, it's show. A good, or, it's a good, it's a good little example of what's going on in our society you know yeah um well let's let's jump in because uh we've got um a great one here Should we, let's let's mention too that that uh because uh, we're gonna we're gonna play this at the yeah let's uh, next week <laughs> we've got a very special episode we're not gonna tell you too much about it yet but we are gonna tell you the story of our eye-opening visit that we took the other day. Dave, do you want to tell them where we went yesterday? <laughs> we went to Prager U. We went to Prager U. And let me tell you something, folks. You go on the Prager U website, you can't find Prager U. Nope. <laughs> they go out of their way to make you sure cannot. you can't find Prager U. Guess who found Prager U? <laughs> Josh did. And we went. And we went and uh, it was interesting, but you're going to have to wait until next week to hear about that. But this week, um, so incredibly excited. Uh, Naomi Klein is just, I mean, I, she doesn't need an introduction, does she? Nope. But 
I think um, you got to read some of her books. You got to read No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, um, of course, and then uh, her book on the Green New Deal are all pretty essential. But she's got a new one that just came out um, that hadn't come out when we recorded this called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Um, she says, as she says, it's an attempt to um, create a usable map of our moment in history. And it uses a personal situation as a leaping off point. And it's pretty funny because uh, well, it's the fact that people often it. mix her up with anti-vax conspiracy wacko Naomi Wolf. Um, and we realized, <laughs> and this is understandable. We did that episode with Professor Wolf a while back and Naomi Klein came up and uh, uh, one of us, I won't say who, um, called her Me. Naomi Wolf. <laughs> but she yeah. uses that, the fact that people do that all the time and leaps off into uh, kind of a much larger subject um but anyway she uh we were gonna we had to do one on prager use uh stuff on climate considering that's their primary mission i would say wouldn't you yeah is to spread I mean, climate yeah. disinformation so we thought let's let's yeah. get one of the greats to uh walk us walk through with us so uh let's do it hey there it's david sirota host of lever time the flagship podcast from the award-winning investigative news outlet the lever In politics, there's a complex web of money, influence, and greed that corrupts our democracy. Levertime is an unflinching examination of the latest news, events, and issues that often go unrecognized and unreported by corporate media. We interview a variety of guests and experts across media and politics, and we hold the powerful accountable. Some recent interviews include Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, comedian David Cross, progressive leader Nina Turner, and artificial intelligence expert Dr. Max Tegmark. So if you're looking for a true independent voice in political media, check out Levertime. Go to levertimepod.com or search Levertime on your podcast player to subscribe. If you finally had enough of hippie college left-wing fluff, get yourself a real degree from Prager University. Let's jump into the first one. Let's just get right into it. This is uh, Richard Lindzen. He's like a major climate change denier um, and takes a ton of money from various groups. We've got a piece from uh, Carbon Brief that describes him and said, a pervasive aspect of Lindzen's presentation was the conflation of uncertainty with ignorance. In his view, because we are uncertain about some aspect, we therefore know nothing about it. And any estimate of it is mere guesswork. Um, he gets a ton of money from oil and coal I, interests to you know testify and to write articles. And he once described Exxon as the only principled oil and gas company. <laughs> by the way if anybody wants to if you see someone talking about climate change and you you think that they're uh like this uh the smog blog uh com has a great database of who everybody is and who they have worked for and where their money comes from to dispense uh disinformation so you can always go look up these people and You'll have everything you need to know who they are. So uh, here we go. Let's do uh, climate change. What do scientists say uh, with Richard Lindzen? I'm an atmospheric physicist. I've published more than 200 scientific papers. For 30 years, I taught at MIT, during which time the climate has changed remarkably little. Um. Um. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> I mean, right there, it's like, why do we have to pay attention to this guy? You know, what, what year is this video, though? Uh, this is from 2016. Yeah, see, that's where I think he's in a little bit of trouble, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we could update that to include the die-off of the Great Barrier Reef, the tipping of the Amazon into... Uh, not, you know, lots of it not being a rainforest anymore, but actually not sequestering carbon, but emitting it. Um, uh, what happened after t- 2016? Hurricane Maria, um, uh, Hurricane Irma. I mean, like just the heat dome, um, the Pakistan floods, like a lot has happened since 2016, which is, I mean, the climate was changing before uh, 2016, but this is, this is a harder argument to make post 2016 for sure um but yeah yeah like loading up the credentials up front to just kind of get people to to just defer uh, um human as opposed to the vast 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 majority of his colleagues who think he is a uh you know an abomination (laughs) (laughs) but even even in 2016 enough had happened just on a you know, Dave and I both live in Los Angeles, and I mean, every year, I will say this, the last two years or so hasn't been quite as bad, but pretty much every year the fires get noticeably closer to my house. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can, you know, to the point that we have conversations about it. And that's just LA. That's just one aspect of life here. So it seems that like you're you're in risky territory making videos where you can say, I haven't, I haven't seen any change in the climate. <laughs> right away, you're you're risking the fact that most of your audience lives somewhere where they have. Yeah. I think like, even from just a personal perspective of like, you know, when I lived in New York, people would be like, Oh yeah, that used to freeze over every year. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just, if you're of a certain age now, you remember what the climate used to be like, and it is now very different. But the cry of global warming has grown ever more shrill. In fact, it seems that the less the climate changes, the louder the voices of the climate alarmists get. So let's clear the air and create a more accurate picture of where we really stand on the issue of global warming, or as it is now called, climate change. There are basically three groups of people dealing with this issue. Groups one and two are scientists. Group three consists mostly at its core of politicians, environmentalists, and media. Group one is associated with the scientific part of the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC Working Group One. These are scientists who mostly believe that recent climate change is primarily due to man's burning of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas. This releases CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere and they believe this might eventually dangerously heat the planet. Group two is made up of scientists who don't see this as an especially serious problem. He, he just says they can be groups. That's why it's not, he's not talking about the number in the groups. He's just like, there's two groups. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, I mean, do you, do, you, do you think they go, uh, like he has this idea, he's going to talk about climate change. I mean, do you think he brings it to PragerU and they're like, well, you can't say percentages. Let's just talk. Let's just use the word groups. I mean, they have to have like a propaganda expert there who's 
feeding them stuff to present it in a certain way. So it does sound reasonable what he's just said to someone who doesn't know. Yeah, I mean, this is all, this is this strategy. I, you know, I don't I don't think Prager deserves the credit for having designed this strategy. They're just oh, not at all. No, <clears throat> the kind of I, you know doubt is our product um, borrowed from the tobacco you know industry by the mm, right. uh, fossil fuel industry and you know where you really see it is the Heartland Institute, which a lot of these guys are associated with a lot of these so-called like dissident scientists, right? So the, the, the Heartland Institute is a free market think tank, quote unquote free market, um, that hosts this annual climate change denial conference. I've been to it. Um, it's insane. Um, it's people like this who get trotted out to just just sprinkle doubt around. It's all It all contradicts. Like you'll have one person say climate change is happening, but it's not that bad. We can just get air conditioning. And then there'll be somebody else who says like, it's sunspots. And then there'll be somebody else who is like, you know, an, a, a retired astronaut who's just like, it, you know, it's not happening. Things are actually getting cooler. And somebody else says like, carbon is good for you. You know, like it's, we're going to have more plants. And, it, and there's no attempt to resolve any of it. It's just like, let's throw stuff at the wall to confuse people. Yeah. Um, and they even I'm, published- I'm fascinated by that though. You, you've been, I mean, is there... <laughs> They can't try to grapple with the idea of all these people being in the same room and talking to each other like they believe what they're saying. It's a lot of old men who look like this guy, you know, and they're like, there's like a lot of hobby, like weather hobbyists. And there's just Mm -hmm. like a real small handful of actual scientists, all of whom are funded by fossil fuel companies in one way or or another. Um, And I think it's a bit of an ego trip, right? Because they published this, rival IPCC report. <laughs> so you have this oh, they did. IPCC report is thousands and thousands of scientists all kind of aggregated. And it's, it's actually very conservative because it, because when you collaborate on that scale, you're going to, it's, it's going to round down to the, um, you know, the, 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 the most conservative estimates of outcomes. And also it has to be approved by governments. And so they, they cha- I forget what it is, but they changed like one, letter in the acronym so that gets sort of confusing um but the main thing to understand is like the heartland institute is not a science like it's not a scientific organization like their goal is just to like you know impose austerity and privatize public services and what they realized was that climate change was a huge threat to that you know far-right kind of chicago school economic agenda because you do need to regulate you do need you know you need governments to be able to govern (laughs) and so their whole project of dismantling the public sphere is threatened by the reality that we are actually overheating the planet and endangering the support systems for life on this planet and that means we actually have to like intervene in a pretty forceful way, which makes their heads explode. So they found like the three scientists who will say it's not happening so that they can, but that's not the goal. The goal is not science. Like you have to be very, and that's where Prager fits. Yeah. Right? Like they don't right. the, the science of it. They, they care about the implications of the science because all their other stuff then is, you know, falling apart in their head. The science of climate change is real. Right. And that actually in right. government and all of their, scare tactics around socialism and the rest of it, you know, become a lot less appealing. I would argue. 
Yeah. Oh, and yeah. and and sure enough, here's a there's a quote from him speaking at the Heartland uh, Institute in 2009. So there he is. I belong to. We're usually referred to as skeptics. We note that there are many reasons why the climate changes. The sun. By the way, they refer to themselves as skeptics. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I just got into like an argument with with my publisher because. I used the phrase denial to describe the deny, you know, their climate change deniers. And, the, and, and it was like queried because they like to refer to themselves as skeptics. And I was just like, I will die on this hill. That is, that, that's yeah. the art. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. We're all skeptics. Oh, I thought because I had read something recently where there was some concern about calling them deniers because it, it, it smacked of Holocaust denial and there was a whole oh, no. kerfuffle about how wrong it is to equate one with the other. And I'm, <laughs> Really? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, they're, they're deniers. But no, even, even as a kid, I remember I would turn on the news. I wouldn't turn on the news. I was a kid, but you know, so the news would be on and um, they'd be doing a piece on, on the environment, you know, the seventies, early eighties. And I remember there being a moment where I started noticing that they started doing this thing where they would like bring in somebody for an alternative viewpoint. And it always struck me as very odd that they don't, you know, they don't do this with everything. And why do you need an alternative viewpoint? And then it would be some person spouting stuff that was clearly wacko. And even as a kid, this seemed like a really bad idea to me. And, and it's one of those things where I go like, well, I knew something because just giving those people a podium uh, uh, seems to have been a very, very bad idea. I think we're now paying for it because I guess the argument was, well, the scientists will destroy them in open debate. And yet they didn't. Or, or destroyed the open debate isn't the point. Yeah, yeah. Clouds, oceans, the orbital variations of the Earth, as well as a myriad of other inputs. None of these is fully understood, and there is no evidence that CO2 emissions are the dominant factor. But actually, there is much agreement between both groups of scientists. The following are such points of agreement. One, the climate is always changing. Two, CO2 is a greenhouse gas without which life on Earth is not possible, but adding it to the atmosphere should just, lead to some warming. Three. But it's just I mean, so water dumb. is good, but if the whole planet was covered in water, we'd die. Is sort of, am I right? Is it about the same thing? Group one thinks group two are a bunch of idiots. Um, <laughs> that's important and it's left out. Um, yeah, well, it's it's worse than that. They're not just idiots. I mean, they're paid. Like, are yeah. they? Yeah. Is this guy really this dumb, or is he just really this cynical? Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, we could finish the rest of this terrible video, but like, you know, I do think it. It's it's we are seeing less of this particular um, tactic around just like straight up denial. Like, it's fine. The planet's always changing, right. you know, um, and more like really focusing on scare tactics about the implications of what this will mean to you. Right. Right. Like, like they will take away your cars and your hamburgers and they will lock you in your house. Like there's been a bit of a pivot since COVID where they're going from like, well, you experienced COVID lockdowns, get ready for climate lockdowns, which is a big like heartland mm -hmm. talking point. So yeah, I think, I think we'll see less, less of straight up denial because it's just, too many people have direct experience with it. 
and more just like, okay, climate change may be happening, but what these socialists want to do about it is way worse than anything that right. climate change can do to you, you know? Um, and more of kind of like fascist take too. Like, like well, yeah. maybe it's just poor people who are going to die and they deserve right. it. But then also, it's not just the right wing view. I mean, that seems to be very much the sort of mainstream liberal view too these days. Is is let's let's take it slowly. You know, we um, uh, it gets treated as any other issue when you know it's a ticking clock. I mean, it's terrifying to me that I feel like we have a significant number of, for instance, Democratic leaders who, for all intents and purposes, are climate change deniers. And and this seems to be the real battle we're fighting these days. Is just saying you believe the science. Uh, doesn't matter if your acts negate what you're saying. And it almost is starting to feel like these, these wackos on the right are serving the purpose of distracting us uh, or somehow whitewashing the people in the quote unquote center who are continuing to endanger us and continuing to give out drilling permits and so forth and so on. Does that? I, I, you know, I agree. And that's kind of why debating, the hard deniers, you know, like this is a bit of a waste of time because the bigger, the bigger threat is this is the soft denial of, of Joe Biden. Who's like saying right. it's happening, but Hey, have, have, you know, have, have, I don't know how many more permits in the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, let's open up Alaska and, and, uh, you know, cause that's in a way it's harder to tackle when, when people are saying the right things. Right. Yeah. Um, which it shouldn't be. You should be able to point to their actions somehow, and and yet it it uh, there seems to be this sort of uh, disconnect somehow between. But you know they they might be showing this stuff in schools still. It's possible, you know. Like like I've I've definitely heard in like oil, oil rich regions like you know I'm in Canada and you know in Alberta like I've, I've talked to like oh you are wow okay. <laughs> No, I'm not in Alberta. I'm in, I'm in British Columbia. Oh, but oh, oh. I've spoken yeah. to gatherings of a pu- public school teachers, for instance, in Alberta, who talk about how it's controversial for them to teach about climate change because so many wow. of the kids' parents work in oil and gas, and it's seen as biased, right? So I could really see a video like this playing quite well because there's lots of precedent of the oil, oil and gas industry trying to get their you know, their little booklets and videos into classrooms. And that is, you know, bridge too far. Like if it says brought to you by Exxon, yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to play it, but this, you know, has enough, you know, of an arm's length from the industry that you could say, Oh, this is just a different perspective. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, as we go, the videos are going to get more recent. The next one is like a, a, a takedown of the green new deal. Atmospheric levels of CO2 have been increasing since the end of the Little Ice Age in the 19th century. For, over this period, past two centuries, the global mean temperature has increased slightly and erratically by about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 degree Celsius. But only... Okay, so um, that's actually a lot. <laughs> just uh, <laughs> just want to throw it out there. That's, uh, that's pretty... That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like they can just say cause one degree Celsius. You're like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound like, no, that's, that's right now we're at like 1.5 and it's really not going great. So since the 1960s have man's greenhouse emissions been sufficient to play a role five, given the complexity of climate, 
no confident prediction about future global mean temperature or its impact can be made. The IPCC acknowledged in its own 2007 report that, quote, the long-term prediction of future climate states is not possible. And well, again, I'm the, the most layman layman in this group. I think that's not the same thing as saying they don't know what they're talking about. It's just saying they can't be entirely specific. We're on a train. Yeah, I mean, it's headed north. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of using scientific honesty against itself, right? Because scientists tend right. to be very, very careful and to hedge and, 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 um, and of course we can't predict long-term climate states because we don't know whether we're going to cut emissions and, you know, we, and there's, there, there are, there is uncertainty in models in terms of, um, particularly in terms of specific locations, but you can predict the trajectories and because of this kind of cherry picking, right, that, that was a 2007 report. Um, I think scientists have gotten, had to get better at being a little bit more direct, right? And, you know, when, when IPCC reports are, are um, issued now, they tend to use some pretty direct language, right? Um, I think the Secretary General of the UN talked about the, an atlas of, of human suffering um, to describe the, the one of the more recent reports. Um, so yeah, they're getting a little bit better at comms because of because of having so much taken out of context. Right. You yeah. want scientists to be honest about uncertainty. Um, it's kind of very similar to what happened with COVID, right? Whenever mm. you whenever you heard a, a medical expert talk about uncertainties, then you saw anti vaxxers just seize that take it out yeah, of yeah, they don't know what they're talking about right so listen to my you know the local gym owner you know yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> who does know exactly what he's talking about <laughs> he has no uncertainty most importantly the scenario that the burning of fossil fuels leads to catastrophe isn't part of what either group asserts so why are so many people worried, indeed panic-stricken, about this issue? Here's where Group 3 comes in, the politicians, environmentalists, and media. That's you guys. All of whom are, what, getting rich off of this somehow? I, this is the part I never understand, is how, what, what is the incentive for all these people who tend to be motivated by money and power? They do. Well, that's the funny thing is the the deniers, uh, these guys are getting paid to say this, but then they go, well, all the scientists are being paid. And you're like, yeah, because that's they they have jobs. Right. Uh, and then they're not they as much as seen, you. So they're lying. <laughs> right. But that's but they're ta it's it's the same thing with the right wing. Always what they're doing is what they accuse other people of. Global warming alarmism provides them more than any other issue with the things they most want. For politicians, it's money and power. How, how, like, can anybody lay that out? How does that work? How is there money and power in saying, uh, uh, we need to start looking into alternative <laughs> power sources? Josh, I don't, I don't know how, if you know how much uh, 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 high school teenagers funnel to the politicians, but it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, Naomi, you, you spend more time than anybody around these people and looking, I mean, or studying them. What, what can you square that circle? Can you make that make sense as 
just the most rudimentary argument? Well, look, the money thing is ridiculous, obviously, because oil and gas companies donate a huge amount. And it isn't just the direct donations and the think tanks and the, and the rest of it. It's, it's it's also like the threat of attack ads and funding your rivals, which right. is a big, you know, so, so you, you know, you stick your neck out too far and, you, you know, it's not that you, you don't get the check. It's, it's that your rival gets showered with cash. Um, right. Um, you know, I guess they could make the argument that the power, and this is where, you know, it comes to what I was saying before is like, you know, cl- like climate, the, the climate emergency is an emergency. And it does mean that we need our politicians to um, use the levers that they have to take action. And I wish they did that more. <laughs> I mean, what I see them as abdicating, I see them as abdicating their power in the face of that lobby. Um, but I think if you were the Heartland Institute, you would say um, it's a power grab because these politicians will actually have to govern instead of just, you know, deferring to the markets. For environmentalists, it's money for their organizations and confirmation of their near-religious devotion to the idea that man is a destructive force acting upon nature. Or hear me out, crazy idea. Some of us just want our kids to have a shot at dying peacefully of an old age. (laughs) And for the media, it's ideology, money, and headlines. Doomsday scenarios sell. Meanwhile, over the... But they don't. I mean, the media's not. They They don't don't cover this story. (laughs) They don't. They famously do not go near climate change stories. And even when they are climate change stories, they they just make them about a railway crash and don't discuss any other aspect of them. I mean, I directly asked Chris Hayes on Twitter. I said, you guys don't cover climate change. And he said, it doesn't get ratings. That was you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man i felt bad for chris he was like just being honest it was like <laughs> he was yeah he was being honest but it's also like you know that's what people have to acknowledge like because he did a really great episode on um with a, a new york some sort of planner uh talking about how climate change was going to affect new york and and it was fascinating it was really good and in depth and part of it was like we've already written off large sections of Queens and Brooklyn to climate change. They're already lost. And that's when I asked him that question. And it's like, well, he can cover it on a podcast, but, and my response was, you have to find a way to make it palatable for people. You don't, just giving up isn't enough, but you know, then I, you know, then you're talking to his boss. No, but that that was a really interesting exchange. And, And I do think that, I mean, I feel bad because I do think he does more than pretty much anybody else on cable news. And he, it, it, but it was, it was useful to have that, you know, admission. Um, and, and yeah, no, I think he, he did like some town halls not long after about the Green New Deal. Um, but yeah, it, it, and then, I mean, like what you were saying, Josh, like even when it is a climate story, there's still this feeling of it's somehow opportunistic or untoward to point out that this hurricane's strength probably has to do with climate change. And that's changing a little bit, um, but still um, not enough. Yeah. The last decade, scientists outside of climate physics have jumped on the bandwagon, publishing papers blaming global warming 
for everything from acne to the Syrian civil war. And crony capitalists have <laughs> okay, eagerly. Wait a minute. Wait, I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> well, one is absolutely true. Like, like the, a big part of the Syrian war was was the drought. Like it led to, and droughts have led to chaos for centuries. Like that's just a thing. They've they've ended civilizations. Like, but you compare it to acne. It's like okay, yeah. well now. <laughs> But that's one of the things they do all the time. And it's, again, it's just one of the PragerU tactics is they'll always throw in a ridiculous thing. You can always find somebody who disagrees with you who said a ridiculous thing, and then you just lump them in with everybody else. So you're – Yeah. Acne, I would like to find that reference. Yeah, uh, I know. I, now I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to know. They <laughs> grabbed for the subsidies that governments have so lavishly provided – Unfortunately, Group 3 is winning the argument because they have drowned out the serious debate that should be going on. No, no, no. First of all, they're not winning the debate, and and there shouldn't be a serious debate going on about whether or not this is happening. Well, we may be winning the debate, but we're most certainly losing the war. Like, I mean, are there, Yes, thank you. Yes, much better put. Between words and action when it comes to climate <laughs> But while politicians, environmentalists, and media types can waste a lot of money and scare a lot of people, they won't be able to bury the truth. The climate will have the final word on that. I'm Richard Lindson. I yes. 100% he's 100% correct on that. Yes. Unfortunately. I feel like you two should break at that and just have him being swept out to sea. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the horrifying right thing away. you wish you could disconnect yourself from. If somehow we could just watch this happen somewhere else, I would like to watch that happen. But the problem is if I do get to watch that happen, it's happening to all of us, unfortunately. Um, um, uh, so acne has been uh, connected uh, to climate change oh. uh, <laughs> by the, by a dermatology study. Um now I brought this up. This is one of my big points about uh, the politics and climate change. Is is the more that climate change becomes obvious, the more they have to use guys like this. The more they have to fund politicians who are fringe and crazy, because they are denying reality. So it leads to it just leads to us having more and more extreme, crazier politicians, which is where you have fascism popping up. That's true. That's true. I mean, it sets the stage for, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and just people who are absolutely yeah. willing to say anything about anything. Anything. Yeah. yeah. But it also sets uh, well, for, like, you know, Marine Le Pen in France, who's not a climate change denial. She's just a fascist. She's an, you know, she's an fascist. Yeah. And she says, like, this is part of the reason we need to, like, batten down the borders and not let any of these right. people in. Um, which is the form, like, I think, I think we'll look back on this stage of climate denial with some nostalgia. Oh, I hope so. Oh, wait, no, you're not saying what I, oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, she, I, there's she, a Josh, second there. Josh, she's one of, she's one of me. She's <laughs> one of my group, Josh. <laughs> there was one sucker there. I was like, oh, he's this amazing person. I know so much more than I did. She's saying there's hope. That, oh, no, no, she's not. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, 
let's just well, let's jump into the Green New Deal, and um, this one is called Oh yeah, this is called What's the Deal with the Green New Deal? And this guy is Alex Epstein. And Dave, you said you were checking him out, or do you do you know him, Naomi? Or do you know of him? She's I making a face. I <laughs> for the record. I mean, I looked him up. Uh, he started his own organization. Um, yep. Uh, and something called the Center for Industrial Progress. Um, a real go-getter, right? Go, go start your own organization yeah. to give yourself a little platform there. Um, uh, past fellow of the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, and the Cato Foundation. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, the package deal for sure. Um, yeah, got, got gets money from the Cokes. Um, Although he repeatedly says he doesn't work for them, but he just keeps popping up at organizations that take money from them. Is the And he seems... Yeah, Cons- uh, he seems to do cons- consultation work. Um, yeah, yes. And he's the guy. He's the guy that if you need someone to come up and and in, on your news program who will say something just completely ridiculous, uh, you know, you can always bring him in to counter any sort of normal scientific point. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely a niche market that he has identified, and he. Um, yeah. yeah. PA in philosophy, not a scientist. Um, and you can only do that on the right. I can't start doing that and just start spouting sort of leftist talking points and and end up getting paid to do anything is sort of the sad thing. Uh, Brian, yeah. our our uh, our wonderful research guy, also dug up some stuff apparently in college. He wrote a series of articles for the Duke Review um, uh, that show he, quote, considered non-Western cultures, specifically African cultures, inferior and homeless people worse than useless. A couple of good quotes. I submit wow. that because of the bad ideas he promoted, Dr. King is responsible for a great, that is Martin Luther King, is responsible for a great part of the destruction that has occurred in America today, especially among black Americans. Um, and uh, uh, he's also, uh, it is often said that America was built on the backs of slaves. This is simply false. So um, this is, this is, Jeez. Uh, completely legit, completely not racist, Alex Epstein, uh, asking the question, what's the deal with the Green New Deal? We face an existential threat. Life as we know it is on the line. We have 12 short years to change everything, or it's game over. This is the terrifying scenario that's used by many leading politicians to justify a Green New Deal, an unprecedented increase in government power focused on the energy industry. The core idea of a Green New Deal is that government should rapidly prohibit the use of fossil fuel energy and impose 100% renewable energy, mostly solar and wind. This may sound appealing, but consider what it would entail. Today- First and foremost, is that a fair assessment, would you say, of the Green New Deal? I mean, I don't know. Like, It's not just energy. Um, Right. it's transportation and agriculture and it's, it's buildings. Um, it's, it's, I mean, he, he's, he's referencing an IPCC report that said that if we are going to um, keep warming increases below 1.5 degrees, which we really should do and which our government said they would endeavor to do in Paris when they, when they negotiated the Paris Accord, um, 
it would require fundamental, this is a quote, fundamental transformation in virtually every aspect of society. It's my husband's screen favor. Um, and uh, it, it's just science is leading us to some radical places, you know, that's like, that was uh, the argument I made with this changes everything. Like it's either we change or yeah. everything changes, but one way or another, everything's yeah. going to change. And, and that is why it's, you know, people who come out of these free market think tanks who are most freaked out because it shatters their worldview. And, and they see that, you know, he, and he shows his cards, right? He describes it as government overreach. I described it earlier as just governing in the face of an emergency that requires some pretty dramatic action. Um, but yeah. Uh, and I mean, there's also like Michael Mann, uh, climate, climate scientist, talks about... Uh, how there's a procrastination penalty, right? We've been getting this message. Yeah. Our governments have been meeting since the Rio Earth Summit um, at the end of the at the end of the 80s, um, right? Or it was Rio 1992? That was when the IPCC was formed. Um, and you know, since way before Greta was born, our governments have been meeting and talking about lowering emissions and proceeding to allow emissions to increase year after year after year. And so then what you need to do in the face of that is more of a disruption of, of, of society. Yeah. You can't just ignore the evidence and do the exact opposite and expect to then just have a little gradual shift, you know, 30 years down the road. And so I think they're getting more and more panicked. Have there been any high profile kind of like Milton Friedman warshipping the types of from, from that world who have, cause I keep waiting for some of these people to kind of wake up and go, Oh shit. Like, have there been any of those those people in in any kind of high profile capacity who have come out and just said, "Look, my, you know, I'll meet you halfway. My ideas were great when the world wasn't falling apart, but it suddenly dawned on me that we're killing the planet." I mean, usually the revelation. I mean, there are obviously there are right wing people who admit that climate change is real and serious, but mostly what they propose is like carbon carbon pricing scheme of some kind. Yeah. The free market will figure it out, right? Well, it, it can be fixed through tax cuts. Everybody. <laughs> Today, 80% of the energy Americans use to heat their homes, farm their land, run their factories, and drive their cars comes from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. Only 3.4% comes from solar and wind, despite decades of government subsidies and mandates to encourage their use. The reason we don't use much sunlight and wind as energy is that they are unreliable fuels that only work when the sun shines and the wind blows. That's why no town, city, or country has ever come close to 100% or even 50% solar and wind. That's not the only reason, is my understanding. It's also not true. I think Denmark absolutely has areas that are very, I mean, they, they, they produce so much wind energy. They export. Yeah. I mean, he's just playing, they do this. He's just playing on that, that sort of that childlike sense that like, well, how can you do solar energy if the sun's down and if the wind's not blowing? And yet green new deal proponents say they can do the impossible. If only we give the government control of the energy industry and control of major users of energy such as the transportation industry, manufacturing, and agriculture. All of this is justified by the need to do something about the existential threat of rising CO2 levels, 
We're told on a daily basis that prestigious organizations like the United Nations have predicted mass destruction and death if we don't get off fossil fuels. What we're not told is that such predictions have a decades-long track record of getting it wrong. And by wrong, I mean completely missing the dartboard wrong. For example, in 1989, the Associated Press reported a United Nations prediction that entire nations could be wiped off the face of the Earth by rising sea levels if the global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000. We're now two decades past 2000. Wait, that, yeah. that's not what that... It, he's it's not, not what reading it, right? Says. Right, he's... <laughs> God. Like, he just... <laughs> You have to have be able to read stuff to talk about it. I, like that's. <laughs> it doesn't say when it's going to happen. Right. It just it says, says you have to reverse have... it by this point. Yeah. <sighs> or slow it down or whatever. But he's playing. I mean, it, it, this is the problem with doing this stuff. I mean, Naomi, you're 45 minutes into this. And I can tell you what to leave already. But we've, we're, we're, we're <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks into this gibberish. It's like you you have to you have to what address this kind of stuff. It's insane. That's they didn't get it disastrously wrong. <laughs> no, and, and in fact, they've been to the extent that they've been wrong. They've been too conservative. That it's it's actually happening faster than a lot of the the, the early models suggested. But you know who actually knew like and was pretty much right on target was Exxon and Shell as we know from the from, from the papers that have you know come to light their own in-house climate scientists were were projecting you know the outcomes that we're that we're seeing now so yeah i mean i am exhausted by it because it's it, and, and and it's worrying because they're decently produced and you know their other agenda you know one of their other agendas is um, you know a, a systematic defunding of the public public sphere, including schools, right? And so yeah, very much so. overburdened teachers and somebody gives them a slick video and that makes their life a little easier. And that's what this is really, really geared towards, right? Yeah. 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 Very much yeah. so. And the other thing to say is like, the, the, you know, they harp on these subsidies for renewables, which are just a drop in the ocean compared to the direct subsidies for, that we can right? give. Yeah, I mean, how how much would gasoline be if we weren't giving subsidies to these companies? You know, a gallon. Like it, the the amount of money we give to these companies while they're making. I mean, they're the most profitable companies on earth. While they're making all that money is, I mean, it's insane. Two thousand. We're not missing any nations, and human beings are living longer, healthier, and wealthier lives than ever before. But aren't things not bound to get worse? Haven't Perfect. scientists established that CO2... It won't stop. It won't stop. <laughs> That's not... We're not living long. Life expectancy in the United it's, States is going down consistently. Well, yeah. I, I, when was this made, this video? This um, one, uh, this is 20... This is 2019, so we're right. Uh, so we're probably right. right at the cusp. But also, like, yeah. that's not true. Now, now you're just talking yeah. about people who live in poverty and people who don't, right? Yeah. I mean... There's billions of people who are not doing better. There's uh, a lot of people who are doing really great. Uh, so you can't just like take a big brush and go, humans are doing better now because there's there's some real, real horrifying issues. And there are 
countries that are already at at there are Pacific Island countries that are already facing yeah. extinction, and more people were displaced in Pakistan last year from the flooding than live in my country. You know, I mean that's a that's a pretty serious impact. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't affect him. It doesn't affect him. And this this might be the first people who are watching this stuff. This will probably be the first year it affects him because he's in San Diego and he's going to have to pay more for his tomatoes. Oh, uh, well, maybe that'll turn him around. We're not missing any <laughs> nations and human beings are living longer, healthier and wealthier lives than ever before. But aren't things bound to get worse? Haven't scientists established that CO2 is a greenhouse gas with a warming influence on the planet? Yes, but that's only a small part of the big picture. Although CO2 causes some warming, it's much less significant than we've been told. Since we started using significant amounts of fossil fuels in the middle of the 19th century, we've increased the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04%, which correlates with an average temperature increase of about 2 degrees Fahrenheit. It also correlates... That's a problem. Am I correct? <laughs> well... It's just like I, we have the hockey stick, right? Like the, the, we can we can just look at basic graphs and see how hot it's getting. So this is just he's just using numbers he can find that make it seem lower, but it's just absolute garbage. Yeah. But you can definitely see the progression, right? Like that, like hard denial is going out of fashion at PragerU, and yeah. it's like it's yeah. happening, but nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. Exactly. I was right. thinking, yeah, when he started talking about carbon CO2 emissions and, and it's like, yeah, sure, it's, but it's not that bad. ...with significant global greening because CO2 is plant food. All of this is... <laughs> this, is this is when you're like, it's for kids, right? This is when yeah. you can't believe what you're hearing. But when you're talking about a population that's been starved of education and... Uh, for so long, how many people do know about science that would listen to that and go, wow, that's nuts. It's a lot of people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, look, this, this came out like post sunrise movement, occupying Nancy Pelosi's office and AOC introducing the green new deal resolution and the first wave of, 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 of student climate strikes. Right. So they're kind of like, they're worried about losing a generation um, who have gone off and researched this on their own or they've watched documentaries and they're organizing and yeah, they, they definitely want to get their talking points into schools. Well, I feel like, I mean, this is a horrible thing to say. It's like the one area aspect of the pushback that gives me hope, if you will, is, is this is that generation's version of the Vietnam war except it's not going to take a couple of years to make it go away. And we're not all going to get to go off and get nice cushy jobs on wall street. This is an existential crisis for every young person living on this planet. And it just seems to me, it's going to be a lot harder for people like this to get through to them, to change their minds about something in which their very existence is dependent. And I think when I watch these videos, I think they're, they're trying to reach, you know, kids, but the audience is really Old older people. people. I mean, that's yeah. who they're really reaching and that's who they're really convincing. And that's who's really digging in their heels. 
Yeah, really, the idea is more for your uncle. To make this makes your uncle feel good about the fact that you're not talking to him anymore. <laughs> That's correct. It's like some guy in a suit with a lot of hair gel. Yeah. Unprecedented territory for our planet, which has existed with at least ten times today's CO two levels and a twenty five degree warmer average temperature. What is truly unprecedented, though, is how safe we are from climate. The international. What, what, wait, wait. <laughs> He's talking about before humans were on <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah. Dinosaurs then? Is that what he sees? Okay. Disaster database, a nonpartisan organization that tracks deaths from climate-related causes, such as extreme heat, floods, storms, and drought, shows that such deaths have been plummeting as CO2 emissions have been rising. How is this? Do you know that organization? What was it called again? It, uh, EMDAT, International Disaster Database. That seems uh, to yeah, me highly Im Im improbable that fewer people when there are actually more people on the planet are dying of things. That are yeah, nothing comes up when I search in the smog or anything. No, I mean, you're not, you're not familiar with this highly esteemed nonpartisan organization. Not, but like, you know, I, the only thing I can think is that, you know, you can massage data in various ways, but like, for instance, um, you know, a country like Bangladesh has had some of the highest mortality rates from cyclones and they have introduced measures um, to, to prepare, right, and to get people into shelters, and they have reduced the death toll from cyclones, um, not because cyclones aren't getting stronger, but because they have, you know, prepared, um, you know, you can't prepare for everything, right? There are, there are events that are too extreme to prepare for, as we saw with Pakistan, but um, there's also issues around, like, whether it's a direct death, like, if you think about Hurricane Maria, which would have been maybe the same year this came out um, or the year before, the people who died from falling debris were, was like below 50, right? But the, but the research that came out a couple of years later, or maybe it was just a year later from Harvard that looked at the, you know, what they call excess death, right? Estimated it at between 3,000 and 5,000 deaths. But it was because of the kinds of policies that these people advocate, like austerity, starving the public sphere, right. and so the entire electricity grid collapses and the healthcare system collapses, and a lot of elderly people can't plug in their oxygen machines and they die in the months after, right? So, mm -hmm. so I, yeah, I would just question, like, are we talking about a direct impact or are we talking about the intersection of their warped worldview with extreme wet weather? Because that's what's really, really lethal, right? Um, you know, we had a heat dome where I am in the Pacific Northwest a couple of years ago. Um, uh, 600 people died in, in the area where I am. And it was this intersection of kind of neglect of the elderly, um, public services not being robust enough to like, get ambulances to people in time. Um, you know, that, it, it, it's never one thing or it's rarely one thing that causes it. It's, an, it's the stew of, of uh, you know, the impacts of this whole model. Right. And that's the same thing we're seeing with COVID, the exact same thing, you know, 
in which case you have the CD saying, you know, did they die with or of? And it's like, well, a lot of a lot of with is actually of. But, you know, you've put it in the other category to make it look better. Such deaths have been plummeting as CO2 emissions have been rising. How is this possible? Because of the fossil fuel energy that emitted the CO2, which has empowered us to climate-proof our environment with heating, air conditioning, sturdy buildings, mass irrigation, and weather warning systems. Fossil fuel energy has not taken a naturally safe climate and made it unnaturally dangerous. It's taken our naturally dangerous climate and made it unnaturally safe. Fossil fuels are not... <laughs> Wait. Wait. <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is when, like, your 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 uncle comes over for for yeah. uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and everyone's having a discussion. He says this, and everyone just looks at their mashed potatoes and eats, and no one <laughs> says anything anymore because it's completely insane, and you don't know what to say to it. You're like, just let uh, Uncle Leo. Okay, we're gonna switch the subject but, now. But Dave, air conditioning save lives. I, 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 sure. Um, also, also. <laughs> <laughs> but it's saving life lives from the the heat stuff that's happening that's really bad i i just i i can't believe how dumb it is i i am it, it, he these people break my brain and this and the thing that drives me crazy is you know we're we're always on the defensive like that's how this works with them they're they are always attacking so we always have to defend and it's like in a debate you're like yeah okay that I just let it go. But these videos are being passed around and going out to people. I mean, this, this is what my dad was like at the end. He was just saying stuff like this. And I was just like, I don't know what, um, like what's happening right now. It, it was all Alex Jones and, and Prager kind of videos. Yeah. And I mean, for, to bring it back to the green new deal, you know, the green new deal has lots um, of, uh, you know, the, the, the broader vision of a green new deal ha has all kinds of plans for, weatherproofing, public housing, and the folks who are vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be air conditioning. It can be heat pumps, but you actually need a plan and you need a program. And that is what the Green New Deal is, which he is attacking at the point of this video. Um, yeah. it, it's a combination of, you know, the fossil fuel companies want to keep making money, but also they just don't want to spend money on anything. And, to get through climate change, we have to massively spend money, massively. Our infrastructure has been neglected for 50 years. Like, it's bad, the situation that's coming. Yeah. This has been fun. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. We're very sorry to do this to you. Um, <laughs> it was fun to talk to you guys. But it's, it's, it's been a joy, and um, I, I you never have to look at these things again, so... Yeah, um, unless you choose to. <laughs> In which case, uh, we'll get you a therapist. You. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, do you have any like? Were there any last final sort of lessons you learned from this? Um, aside from just ignore David Sorota's emails from here on out, or <laughs> fund education so teachers don't have to play videos to fill class time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. This has been yeah, absolutely fantastic. Good morning, class. Good morning, Good morning Professor Gender Neutral Pronoun. Today, we're learning all about socialism, deviant sex, and devil worship. Yay! And how cool it is. Hail Satan, but I want to learn about Jesus. Ooh. Oh, Jesus.
Timmy. Science fiction is next week. If you finally had enough of hippie college left-wing fluff, get yourself a real degree from Prager University. Good news, class. Bill Gates is here to give everyone free vaccines. Science is a commie plot. Our professors can't be bought. All textbooks are Soros free at Prager University. My pronouns are he and him. Loser. No more guilt, no more blame. No more hetero white male shame. No apes on your family tree at Prager University. We want to thank our incredible support team, uh, Brian Ciano, our free-floating agent of chaos, a.k.a. research guy. And also Colin McCoy, who does all of our music. You can also find him he out there in music world. He is known as Diesel Boots. <laughs>